Welcome to Fearonomics, the podcast which helps you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. We'll be looking at the latest economic data, debunking myths and defining the risks we all need to watch out for. And of course, those that we don't. My name is Jonathan Charles, and here with me, I've got Sergei Guriev, Professor of Economics at Sciences Po in Paris, and Beata Yavorchik, Professor of Economics at Oxford University, and also the EBRD's Chief Economist. Uh, they will be assessing the potential, the fears, the risks, and the solutions to the global food crisis as we have our conversation. Let's look at the context, even before the war on Ukraine and the pandemic. According to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, 690 million people, or 9%, of the world's population were already facing food insecurity and hunger. According to March's food price index produced by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, the index spiked by as much as 20% above the same levels a year ago. This represents a new all-time high, exceeding the previous peak of February 2011. Russia's war has now been going on for over a month. It has added to a situation where commodity markets are upended and global trade flows and global food security are suffering from even higher risk. And let's not forget the disruption caused by the pandemic, which we're still recovering from. On top of that, we still need to address the climate change challenges that undermine global food resilience. So the situation is quite stark and the impact on people's lives will be quite devastating. So are these the three key fears we're facing? Price hikes, social tension, global hunger, especially in countries such as Yemen in the Middle East or in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, Sergei, Beata, what do you think? What are the three key fears that keep you awake at night? Beata first. Hello, Jonathan. My main fear is the war spiraling out of control and becoming a global conflict. I worry about a deliberate or accidental usage of nuclear weapons or one of nuclear plants in Ukraine being hit accidentally. I still vividly remember the time of the Chernobyl disaster. Yes, uh, incredibly worrying all the potential for things that could go horribly wrong. Uh, Sergey, I agree with Beata, but if we, if we stick to the food crisis, I think, I think uh, that's exactly like you said, the, um, the price spikes may actually result in social and political tensions. And that is especially likely in countries which don't have fiscal capacity. So a lot of people worry about gas price hikes, oil price hikes, gasoline price hikes in developed countries. We hear uh, American president and European prime ministers talking about the need to um, uh, somehow uh, mitigate the shock due to higher oil and gas prices. But uh, we hear much less about developing countries that you mentioned. And uh, this is where we may actually have political instability. Uh, I would uh, remind you that uh, the previous round of uh, food crisis in 2007, 8, 9, 10 uh, resulted in uh, major instability in uh, North Africa and Middle East. Uh, and uh, that, may, that may repeat itself given that in the last 10 years, most of the countries have not improved their fiscal capacity, cannot easily mitigate the shock and support the households. So I think, I think uh, this is an, a risk that people don't talk much about, but uh, I am worried that uh, in a country like Egypt, uh, uh, the U Russian invasion in Ukraine will result in higher bread prices and major political instability, which may result in uh, 
brutal, brutal oppression, for example. Yes, and of course, we remember that the uh, Arab Spring came about partially, of course, because of rising food prices and rising cost of living and lack of opportunities. Um, we will come back to all of that. We will unpick all of that uh, a little later in this podcast. But let's try to take a, a step back, maybe. Um, let, let's look at what exactly are the food-related sanctions on Russia and Belarus and the impact of that. And what does that mean for the global uh, world, from, from grains to fertilizers? Sergei, Sergei, what are sanctions which affect food and food exports? Well, um, there, are, there are two different things. Uh, one is, of course, Ukraine, where it's not about sanctions, but about the war. And uh, if the war stops now, it's already very difficult to envision a scenario where Ukraine fully restores its uh, its uh, agricultural production this year. Um, in Russia, as you rightly said, in Russia and Belarus, there is an issue of sanctions, which uh, reduces access to technology and most importantly, boycott by the private sector. So um, European American companies uh, provide uh, equipment for agricultural production and transportation for agricultural produce. And uh, the largest transportation companies, Western transportation companies, uh, suddenly uh, understand that they cannot do business with Russia. And that results, that is not because of uh, sanctions imposed by the governments or European Commission, but because of the private sector boycott. A lot of companies uh, understood that early on, uh, on the website of Yale School of Management to professors um, Sonnenfeld and, and Tian actually list all the companies which exited Russia. These are 450 companies. Uh, it takes just one uh, Danish company, Myersk, which is a giant of uh, global transportation to say, sorry, we don't move Russian uh, produce anymore to completely disrupt uh, global agricultural trade uh, with Russia, well, cross-border agricultural trade with Russia. And so this is, this is a, a small example. And uh, this small example may have huge implications. What about the availability of food within Russia and Belarus? Because, uh, you know, there has been panic buying, of course, in some cases in the shops. Russia is not known as one of the most efficient producers uh, internally. So what, what will all this mean for the average consumer? I'm not worried about hunger in Russia. Russia is not Yemen. Russia does have agricultural production. The panic buying was there. And it is a very good demonstration of how inflation and hyperinflation works. So basically, when you see that prices are going up, you want to defend your rubles from inflation. And in the normal circumstances, people will probably just buy dollars. But uh, because of capital controls, Russian Central Bank introduced uh, all kinds of constraints on how you can and cannot buy hard currency. So people would buy what economists would call durable goods. But instead of cars or iPhones, or fridges, uh, most Russians didn't have enough money for that. So they just bought sugar or buckwheat. And that is an example uh, of unintended consequences from introducing uh, limitations on circulation of our currency. So people, instead of buying dollars, would just buy too much sugar, uh, too much buckwheat. But I, I, I hope that the situation will normalize uh, simply because, in principle, Russia produces enough food. It's go not going to be good food. It's not going to be diverse food. Um, but, uh, but at least it will be enough calories. So I'm, I'm not worried about this. 
Okay, Let, let's turn to Ukraine itself, Beata. I, I was listening the other day to somebody saying that they thought at the moment <clears> Ukraine <throat> would be lucky to serve about 20% of its crop this year. Uh, I mean, if that turns out to be the case, that would be pretty devastating in terms of exports, would it, for a major export nation? Absolutely. Um, Ukraine accounts for 10% of world's exports of wheat, and wheat is grown on, on the part of Ukraine where the fighting is at its most intense. On top of that, there is a shortage of fuel um, to be used in agriculture. So that already suggests that um, the crop of wheat will be much lower. But of course, it's not just wheat. Um, Ukraine is one of the top four exporters of corn right up there with Brazil and Argentina, exporting corn you know, to Egypt, North Africa, as well as Iran, Turkey, and China. And almost all of Ukrainian corn is exported via Black Sea. And at the moment, there is no shipping happening uh, in the Black Sea. Um, a couple of days ago, the US State Department was reporting that Russia bombed at least three civilian ships carrying goods from Black Sea. Uh, one of them was uh, owned by agribusiness company. Apparently there are 94 ships carrying food um, that are being prevented from reaching Mediterranean. So it's not just production, it's also shipping. Finally, uh, sunflower oil is another commodity uh, that's worth thinking about. Ukraine accounts for half of global exports of sunflower oil and edible oil is one of the um, staples in poor countries. And also, I think I was reading actually that Russia's banning exports of sunflower seeds and sunflower oil as well, which will add to, add to the issues. Russia accounts for a third of global exports of sunflower oil. And on top of that, the crop of soya beans, which could also be used to produce uh, oil was lower in South America earlier this year. What about the broader region? Uh, we, you know, we've looked at Ukraine. But what about the broader region, Beata? You know, they've got uh, many millions of extra mouths to feed now with refugees in some of the countries uh, around uh, Ukraine. Obviously, they're going to be suffering from higher food prices as well. Uh, someone was telling me, I, I ran into a colleague the other day from the UN World Food Programme at a meeting I was at, uh, and they were telling me, actually, they were already short of the potential to help refugees even before this crisis. So, I mean, all this must, must add up as well to the strains. Absolutely. Um, so this food crisis is already coming on top of um, unstable environment. You know, it was unstable because of droughts in Canada, wildfires in agricultural uh, regions of the US, droughts in Latin America, floods in Australia. And let's not forget that in the Horn of Africa, we saw three consecutive failed rain, uh, rainy seasons. So the situation was already unstable. Now, as Sergei said, I don't think there is a concern that there will be not enough food to go around in Europe. The issue is prices, it's the cost. And Eastern Europe countries coping with large influx of refugees are facing a double whammy of high energy prices as well as food prices. So feeding um, refugees has become much more costly than it would have been otherwise. 
I think in you know when we look back to the food price crises of uh, the past, often we've we've really focused in on uh, countries, you know, emerging economies primarily. You know, we haven't worried so much uh, about what is happening in advanced economies. But actually, in this crisis, bearing in mind the increase in fuel costs, bearing in mind all the other issues, this is definitely a price issue in advanced economies as well, isn't it? Uh, Beata first, then then Sergey. Absolutely. So the high food prices will hit very hard the poorest regions of the world, uh, where they may lead to hunger, social instability. But they are also going to affect negatively um, poor people in middle-income countries and advanced economies. And again, it is this double whammy of high energy and food prices um, that's going to be very hard for poorest households, even in rich countries. So we are going to see inequality going up, not just globally, but also within countries. So okay. Yes, I fully agree with that. But indeed, let me reiterate, um, in, in rich countries, there, would be a, there will be and already is a shock of uh, food prices as well as oil and gas prices. Uh, but even after COVID, these countries have fiscal capacity to compensate the poorest households. And so uh, given the war is in Europe and refugees are in Europe, we talk uh, mostly about the impact on European economies. When we talk about further sanctions and uh, potential embargo on importing Russian oil and gas, we talk about the impact on uh, richest countries in the world like Germany. But uh, in fact, uh, in these countries, there is still possibility to protect the citizens, protect the households while in, in uh, developing countries, the situation is more dire. And I guess that will result in the need, in the plea to development institutions to support the poorer countries, which eventually will also uh, be, uh, be a demand on fiscal capacity of rich countries. So the world, unfortunately, is interconnected and uh, problems of one country become a problem for another country. Yes, we used to say it was fortunate the world was interconnected. That's probably uh, not the case, uh, at least in terms of this particular issue. Let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, which uh, helps you to confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and share your ideas with us on Twitter at EBRD. Hashtag Fearonomics is where you'll find us. Our subject today is the Fearonomics of a Global Food Crisis with Sergei Guriev and Beata Yavorchik. We've looked at many of the problems, but let's try and explore some of the solutions uh, to take some of the fear out of this crisis. Um, are there alternative suppliers, for example, to close the gap? Normally, the markets are, are pretty efficient. You know, when they see a problem, other people come forward to, to fill the gap. Do you think that's possible this time, Sergey? Yes, I, I'm pretty sure that, uh, as, as we discussed, uh, we are not, uh, unless, unless you have political problems, we are not facing a situation that the world will run out of calories. Um, this is something that economists have established a long time ago, that to create a, a real famine, you need political institutions which don't function. As long as you have uh, free media, democratic accountability, famine is usually avoided. As long as you have peace, um, uh, deliveries work and uh, prices eventually will create new suppliers. And uh, that, uh, that is something where the interconnectedness of the world is actually a blessing in the sense that uh, uh, we will see global uh, commodity traders identifying the potential sources of, of grain and uh, sunflower oil and, uh, and bring it from all, all other corners of the world. 
yes, prices will be higher, but uh, there'll be no shortages and no famine as long as political institutions functions, as long as we can assure peace and, and passage of, of the deliveries. So um, there are there are all those alternatives. And in that sense, uh, I want I would here here being at the BRD, I would really praise markets again, the BRD, which uh, like sustainable market economies, I think is right on target. This is where market economies can actually sustain uh, socially cohesive solutions to problems like this. These problems have been um, destroying uh, well-being of humans for thousands of years, but uh, today we are not really running running a risk of uh, large-scale famine. We love our markets at the EBRD. Um, Beata, let me let me ask you something. You know, during the pandemic, uh, which we shouldn't forget is still going on, of course, we've had two years of it. Uh, the world did show it can step up to a challenge. Uh, it is possible. You know, we saw it with vaccine development in record times. Do you think we can see something similar with food production or new technology that actually, you know, we are good markets, not just markets, but the world is good at reacting to a crisis? I hope that the world has learned from the pandemic experience. I mean, if you remember the beginning of the pandemic, where shipments of personal protective equipment were being stopped within Europe and even within the EU, um, the initial experience was rather disappointing. But hopefully we have learned. And um, as Sergei mentioned, um, there is no shortage of food globally. It is the matter of getting food to the people who need it. And there is scope for international cooperation and for policy interventions. Um, unblocking shipping in the Black Sea could go a long way on getting to, towards getting the supplies out. Preventing export restrictions is very important. Um, at the time when many emerging market currencies are under strain, they are weakening, policymakers in emerging markets will have an incentive to prevent exports of food in order to keep inflation under control. And this could artificially lead to spikes in food prices. It could artificially create shortages. So we need um, international efforts to prevent this from happening. And of course, we need to help international bodies such as the World Food Program um, to have enough funding uh, so that they can get the food to the most needy. In the short run, of course, we could also think about biofuels. A third of US corn production goes towards biofuels. Three million tons of European wheat is used to produce ethanol. Um, so if they're really where a shortage of, of food, one could make adjustments on the policy front here. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about food in its purest form, but of course, food needs fertilizer. Uh, and uh, the countries, you know, Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, they're all important producers of fertilizer. Uh, if that doesn't happen, if those exports don't happen, that does have an impact on the ability to grow large, large uh, crops and uh, to actually have the best crops. Do you think scaling up technological innovation might might be an answer here? Uh, what do you think about that, Sergei? 
I'm pretty sure that it's going to happen. And this is exactly where markets and prices work so well. Once you see the opportunity, once uh, prices go up, uh, investment goes in that direction and indeed uh, solves those problems. We saw that actually in the oil market, uh, uh, when uh, oil prices were high in the first decade uh, of the century, uh, innovations related to shale gas and shale oil production uh, really developed quickly and America became a net uh, zero importer of um, actually net exporter of oil by now, being one of the top three producers of oil and gas. And so that is a, an example how really rapidly you can, you can actually see uh, big changes in, in, in technology. So I think, I think uh, we, should, we should assume that uh, the, situation, uh, the situation improves reasonably quickly. But uh, in the very, very short run, I guess uh, the shortage of fertilizer will result in higher prices for fertilizers and therefore higher, even higher prices for food. So this must be an opportunity for the private sector, Beata. Well, it's, I think it's very difficult to <coughs> scale up fertilizer production in the short run. Now, remember that natural gas is an important input into fertilizer production. So producing fertilizer in Europe, where natural gas prices are record high, is much more expensive than producing fertilizer in the US, where prices have not moved that much. Um, so there is an opportunity um, for perhaps relocating production, though in the short term, um, that's, the options are limited because you cannot scale up production given the existing restrictions on the size of um, production facilities. And what about one of the other issues which plays into all of this and the way around it? And I'm thinking about fuel. You know, we've touched on the cost of fuel. It is important for production. I was reading today that cucumber manufacturers in the United Kingdom will be growing cucumbers because the cost of fuel is too great. And I think that's, that's repeated. You know, that little example is repeated in many, many parts of the sector uh, where people are just priced out of, you know, it's just not worth producing. Uh, with the cost of fuel going up so substantially. Um, again, in terms of the search of solutions, you know, for solutions, the America's promised to scale up for LNG imports to Europe. You know, there are other other solutions on the energy crisis being being looked at. Is that going to at least help uh, with food prices, uh, not necessarily in the short term, but in the medium term or, or long term? Sergey? Yes, absolutely. Uh, the energy crisis is here. It was here even before the war. Uh, the oil and gas prices were going up even before the war. And indeed, there was a debate that Europe should uh, accelerate green transition. It will accelerate even faster now because, uh, because uh, of geopolitical risks of being dependent on Russian fossil fuels. But there are also unintended consequences of, uh, uh, of uh, sanctions. So, you know, in Russia and Poland, cucumbers are consumed together with vodka. And uh, Finnish vodka, for example, is no longer exported to Russia. So maybe these supplies can be rerouted and increase demand for cucumbers, which will make uh, cucumber production more profitable. <laughs> Thank you for that excellent example. Uh, Beata. Um, if I may mention a less happy implication of high fuel prices. Um, we talked a lot about North African countries buying agricultural commodities from uh, Ukraine and Russia. Of course, commodities can be purchased from other producers, 
but high fuel prices will mean that shipping these commodities long distance will make them even more expensive on top of, the, of these already high uh, prices. Okay, let me remind you, you're listening to Fearonomics, by the way. Uh, subject today, the Fearonomics of Global Food Crisis with Sergei Guriev and Beati Vorchik. Uh, let's look at the future. Uh, it's always good. To, it's very easy to look at the past, not so easy to look at the future. But what are markets telling us about expectations going forward beyond the immediate, uh, Beata? I think it has become clear that because the current sowing season has been disturbed by the war, uh, we are going to see lower harvest this year, not just in Ukraine, but also globally because of the cost of fertilizer. And that means higher prices being still with us next year. So, okay. I fully agree. But on the other hand, I would, I would mention that sometimes markets are uh, trumped by uh, geopolitics. So if you look at, uh, at how markets uh, priced in the risk of war and sanctions before the war, you would see that markets underappreciated the probability of war and the unity and the um, resolve of the West responding with unprecedented sanctions. So markets are not necessarily able to predict uh, um, uh, actions of uh, certain non-democratic leaders, which may have implications for everything, including food and oil prices. So in that sense, uh, we should look at markets and markets are informative, but we should also not forget that we live in unprecedented times. Uh, this is really when history is being made and uh, uh, this is when sometimes markets are not predicting uh, the future precisely. Now, it pains me to say it as a free market lover, but uh, markets are not always uh, efficient. They're not always the most effective. Uh, they're probably the most effective compared to other things, but they're not always the most effective. Uh, do you think there's a chance here that uh, we may see in future reform of the way food markets work for the better? Is this an opportunity as well as a crisis, Beata? What do you think? I'm not sure that we need a reform of the markets, but there is a role for policy. Um, for instance, having supplies of, of grain, having, having storage. Um, Egypt has recently increased its storage capacity for grain, and that has definitely helped. In contrast, Lebanon has no storage capacity after the recent blast in the harbor. Um, so I think policymakers should invest more in food security being achieved through storage, and that will also assure the public and prevent panic buying should the situation become more rocky. Sergei? Yes, I fully agree. I think uh, we talk about the situation after COVID, and COVID taught us that uh, you may have disruptions, you may have border closures, uh, you need to stock up uh, uh, personal protective equipment that uh, uh, creates additional reassurances for the public. Uh, the same is true for global supply chains where operating too efficiently without storages might actually make you vulnerable and less resilient. And the same applies, of course, to all commodity markets, including, including grain. And uh, the other thing I would mention is, indeed, the global economy is so interconnected, and this is something that we saw during uh, COVID, uh, that uh, sometimes you think that you're protected from uh, supply chain disruptions because you know that your supplier is 
just in, next to you in the same country. But then you cannot really realize that supplier of supplier of your supplier is uh, somewhere in the war zone. And that may create additional disruptions, which it's very hard for you to prevent. And in that sense, having some storage really, really protects you from events which used to be very unlikely, but in today's times, their probabilities are not zero. Let's take a look at uh, another aspect of all of this, which is green. Uh, up until the Ukrainian war, uh, there was a lot of discussion about making agriculture greener. That was really the focus, particularly in uh, more advanced countries, uh, economically, the, the desire to make sure that uh, you know green was absolutely the priority. Where do you see that right now? You know that balance almost, just as there's a balance right now between uh, energy security and green. Is there now uh, a rebalancing of food security and green? Uh, Sergey, first, then Beata. Well, uh, climate change is an existential challenge for our society, for the humankind. Uh, however, we are now indeed in a situation where we have war. And to stop this war, Europe should use economic uh, tools to deprive uh, Russian government of resources. Europe cannot really go as far as it should have because it's too dependent on Russian fossil fuels. And that will force European governments to diversify their energy supplies. That may actually accelerate green energy transition in some cases, but then actually go backwards in some other cases. So um, we will probably see return of coal in order to get rid of uh, dependence of, on Russian gas, which in net terms, of course, is not good news for the green energy transition. So things like this may happen. We may see uh, temporary setbacks because of this war. But overall, um, of course, uh, Europe, which completes uh, decarbonization of its economy, will be fully independent of Russian fossil fuels. And many of the measures that Europe is going to introduce this year, next year, the next three years, this plan called Repower Europe is something that Europe was planning to do anyway, just later. And uh, it, accelerating those decarbonizing measures will actually help to end these hostilities sooner and maybe prevent a new war that Mr. Putin is interested in later on. Beata. I think we need to distinguish between the short and the long run. Um, this war is a short run disruption and I think uh, the spike in natural gas prices and the impetus it will give to safe energy, to diversify sources of energy, may also lead us to use fewer fertilizers, which are energy intensive long-term in agriculture, which actually could be beneficial for our health. Fighting climate change is a long-term objective and hopefully this short-term disruption is not going to derail us from pursuing the long-term objective, even though it is not going to make this pursuit any easier because of the issues mentioned by Sergei. All right, let's try and sum up where we are uh, on this fearonomics, on this fear, you know, the fear factors we should worry about and those that we shouldn't. Um, Beata, you know, what do you think then having, you know, discussed all of this, what are the key risks that we need to bear in mind as we sum up and, and what do you think we can do to mitigate them? The key risk is that the people who need food the most will not get it. And here I am worried about the poorest countries in the world 
because as the world's attention is devoted to Ukraine, we may easily forget people in Yemen and Africa, and we may not devote enough resources to, over, to overseas development assistance that should be directed to those countries. So what do we have to do to mitigate that then? We need to keep in mind um, that this war has a global fallout and that it can hit particularly hard the poorest people in the world. So they must not be forgotten. So again, big risk, big mitigant. So what is it in your mind? Um, I think I think there is a huge risk which we've not discussed, which is related to military issues, the rollout of the war in, in the region of Odessa. Uh, currently, we speak on the 1st of April, it looks like Russian, Russian troops are not going to try to take over Odessa, uh, which is the largest port. Uh, and uh, without Odessa, Ukrainian exports of grain already disrupted gravely will uh, cease to exist. And so that is something that uh, is a huge risk. And the mitigant to that, of course, is to support Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian resistance to Russian invasion, because that is also something that may have really bad global implications that uh, Beata has mentioned. Uh, so far on the 1st of April, as much as a uh, military expert I am, last year I was a COVID expert, now I'm a military expert. Uh, it looks like it's unlikely, but if that happens, uh, Ukrainian grain exports uh, will collapse and uh, that will actually create a major problem for many middle-income and low-income economies. All right. Thank you very much, Sergei and Beata. So I'm just trying to sum up my own thoughts, having listened to all of this. Uh, I think I, I take away from this, I'm not going to go hungry. That is that is very clear. And, and a lot of people are not going to go hungry. Uh, it, but it is going to be very painful on prices for uh, some parts uh, of our society, particularly people on, on limited incomes or fixed incomes. It is going to, though, be painful in other ways for all of us. Uh, we are all going to see the impact of, of price rises, uh, but uh, at least we are going to eat. That would be my, my sum up of uh, what I take away from this discussion and the fears I really should have as opposed to those they shouldn't. But the fear of not being able to eat clearly is not there. Um, thank you very much indeed, Sergei and Beata. Uh, thank you for listening to Fearonomics. It is the podcast where together with Beata and Sergei, we help you confront and overcome your fears about the global economy. You can review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from and share your ideas with us, by the way, as well on Twitter at EBRD, hashtag Fearonomics. See you next time. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with the next episode. In the meantime, remember to review and rate us. It will help others to find us. Thank you and goodbye.